You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? Doing fantastic. Ask me why. Why? My family is on vacation in South Carolina. Okay, I'm glad you brought this up because I did want to bring it up briefly at the beginning of the podcast. Your wife and two daughters are visiting her parents. That's right. In North Carolina. South Carolina. South Carolina. They do a thing where they go to like rent a house on a beach somewhere in South Carolina. They do it like almost every summer. And this is, we may have discussed this before on the podcast, but the aspect that I wanted to bring up for the listening audience is that you do not go. Nope. You stay at home. Yes. Your wife takes your two children on a cross-country plane ride. Well, let's just say rides because... You ain't flying from Montana to South Carolina without at least one stop. Yeah. Sometimes multiple stops. That's right. Multiple layovers. And somehow you don't go. That's correct. How? And how much guilt do you feel over it? Zero guilt. I feel fantastic about it. Okay. I mean, here's... If I, Maybe were, I, should be, I should be having this conversation with Sarah. I'm having the conver- this conversation with the wrong person. If... If I were making her go, if I were being like, I bought you a ticket to South Carolina, take the kids with you uh, so that I could be alone, then I would feel some guilt. But she, uh, this is her decision. She wants to go to this thing. She also knows that I'm not going to go. Uh, I, I'm going on a little bit of a work trip later this week, as, as you may or may not know. So I had some stuff lined up this particular time. Um, but even then, yeah, I'm probably, I'm probably not going to go to that. See, I need to get with Sarah. Maybe I'll start a different podcast. Yeah. Or I can ask her. Probably a more successful podcast. I have a feeling that her commentary on this issue would not be quite as uh, positive and or like exuberant. This is as exuberant as I've seen you in a while. Well, come on. This has been like the best week of my life. When do you take the kids on a cross-country plane trip by yourself? When's that going to happen? Is that coming up? TBA? That one's TBA. Although, hey, when my wife wants to go to do like a four-day comedy tour thing in like Billings and someone's got to stay home and take care of the kids for that, that entire four days, who do you think does that? This guy right here. It's a trade-off, Chad. This is, this is parenting in the modern world. All right. Now supporting I'm, each other. I'm going to start a, diff- a third podcast now okay. where All I right. interview the kids. Oh, well, that, that's going to be interesting. About the differences between when they get solo parented by mommy or daddy. All right, that, I mean, I kind of feel like I know what might be said there. We got music again this week from our guy Dion Rodriguez, a producer from Deltona, Florida. If you like what you hear on the podcast, you can check him out over on soundcloud.com slash dbeat7. Uh, once again, that's the word beats with a Z. Beats. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Michael Bisping announced his retirement on Monday, which is bad news for fight fans but perhaps great news for the greater Manchester dance party scene. DJ Mikey B is about to be spinning them records full time. Ones and twos. And in round number two, Darren Till and Stephen Thompson fell short of our wildest karate kid dreams in the main event of UFC Fight Night 130. But the Scousers seem to have fun. Seem to have fun. See, Scousers. Nailed it. Threw me off. Is that how you're supposed to say it? Because we took just a raft of shit about our pronunciation of this 
uh, like Mary's Mary side England colloquialism. Last <laughs> All week. I know for sure, I don't know if that's how you say it. All I know for sure is that if you don't say it right, yeah, look you out. will hear about it. Yeah, duck, basically. <laughs> I wrote it out uh, phonetically in my notes here, so I would say scousers. Good for you. Wasn't the problem that we said scoozers last week? Maybe. I don't even remember. Round number three, is it possible that the best middleweight in the world is the Bellator? 185-pound champion. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me? Just saying stuff. And Sir Nigel Longstock is here. We're going to play a little Master Tweet Theater. Should we let the kids behind the curtain to tell them that we already recorded Master Tweet Theater? It's too late now. You did and it. And that Sir Nigel Longstock is hornier than ever? It's, it's one not to be missed. I'll say that. This is one of the horniest... Uh, performances of Sir Nigel Longstock's co-main event podcast run. I can't tell He's feeling the spring weather. That's all I can say. Are you trying to get people to turn this podcast off? Well, maybe they can just fast forward through Master Tweet Theater. Well, yeah. Be advised if you're listening with small children. He might have come straight from the bar. I don't know. (laughs) Something was going on. Uh, But right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Brian Martin. He writes, now that ESPN has the broadcast rights to the UFC... Is it too much to hope for of a Scooby meets Harlem Globetrotter-style Disney animated series, including <laughs> UFC mainstays and a Molly crew of characters from various Disney properties? And I don't know uh, if you are up on this, but there are a ton of Scooby-Doo crossover things. Oh, I learned yeah. this when my yeah, oldest daughter are. got really into Scooby-Doo. Yeah. And man, anybody you can think of, any kind of like intellectual property character you can think of, they, uh, they got involved in the mystery on Scooby-Doo at some point. Yeah, well, that would that have been uh, Hanna Barbera back in those days? Maybe. Were they were they rolling out Scooby Doo? Because I know that like I've seen the Globetrotters ones. Okay, Everyone has yeah. seen those. Well, and then who would you match up with Disney properties with the UFC? What kind of crossover you want to see there? Mike Perry and Lightning McQueen from Cars. Oh, okay. Mater, maybe Mater comes through. See, I. I only know the princess movies. Cars doesn't get a lot of traction in my house. We're, they we're going through a big time Cars period right now. Okay. Cars 3, by the way, kind of weird for a kid's movie. Deals with uh, aging. <laughs> right. Being passed by by a younger generation. Well, like I mean, McQueen is getting older. He can't keep up uh, with the new, new breed of racers. You're talking really about the anxieties that fuel the entire Toy Story franchise. I mean, I'm just saying, like, it's it's... There's an entire... Like, I would say subtext, but it's like most of the text of Cars 3 is just like not applicable to, say, a three-year-old. Well, now that I think about it, you could definitely do a crossover where Woody and Buzz Lightyear from Toy Story get in the octagon together. There you go. Now you're thinking. Now you're using your noodle. Yeah. Uh, What do we expect as far as, like, we we talked, I think, last week or a couple weeks ago about how... Hey, when are we going to hear or see the the fruits of Endeavor, WME, IMG leveraging their industry contacts to make the UFC a big deal? Now we got the ESPN, and we're kind of expecting the same thing. Like, hey, now that ESPN can make money off of the UFC, it can, you know, wield its power to really highlight something as a mainstream sport for mainstream sports fans. Do you expect that to happen, and what do you expect that to look like? Well, you'll remember the last time we talked about this, it was after Ariel Helwani had announced that he was moving from Vox to ESPN, and I had said, well, it's good to see, you know, even though they just signed this streaming deal, it's good to see ESPN investing in its UFC MMA coverage uh, in a real way. And then a couple days later, boom, like what I guess is sort of a bombshell drops that uh, all UFC programming will be moving off Fox to ESPN 
uh, in what, 2019? Is that when, when we're doing this? Yes. Uh, and so I guess now you see even more reason why ESPN would want to invest in its coverage. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that's an interesting question about like what, like what, what will happen and like the view of the sport, uh, from a mainstream community, because clearly the UFC will just be on ESPN a lot more, both, uh, you know, actual events on the various channels. And I would assume you're going to see a lot more like ESPN fighters, uh, doing the car wash and being present on Sports Center and stuff or, like that, or stuff like do they make top plays on right, Sports Center right. more often? And I mean, it'll be interesting to see if that has an effect. And I, you know, I would bet, I would bet that you would see a rise in viewership of the average UFC event, and some of that might be because if the shit is on ESPN, people are just going to watch it. Like they they'll stumble across it more easily than they would when it was on Fox Sports One. They'll be on in bars more right. easily. The television, you might just leave the TV on right. right after the whatever pro bowling event that you were watching, and the UFC might come on. But it'll be interesting to see, like you know, what mainstream sports fans make of the UFC and MMA, and whether or not it, it leads to like a groundswell of, of new viewers. Because I would think that if you are a sports fan in America, you would already know what the UFC and MMA are, you may have already checked it out and you would already know how you feel about it. Like, do you feel like we've already reached sort of like a carrying capacity of MMA fandom in the United States? Or is there like an untapped market of potential MMA fans that are going to be reached by this ESPN deal? Okay, this you'll recall we had a similar conversation uh, about the Fox deal at different points. Yeah, it was so long ago. It was so long ago. Um, but and one of, I remember writing a column about the Fox deal when it was announced, and the UFC, of course, was doing the thing where they're saying groundbreaking, world-changing, like sport-destroying, sport sport-altering uh, deal that they had signed with Fox Sports. Which, and you know, it was a big deal to get uh, the UFC on Big Fox, and uh, you know, not saying that that was not a big deal, but it did not fundamentally change the entire nature of the sport or make it incredibly more popular right. than it was. It changed the fabric of the entire sport just because of how the UFC presents its product and the amount of product that it produces, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. But it did not change significantly, at least not for the better, like fan response. Right. And I, I agree with you that not only do I think most people who are going to be sports fans in America or even going to be open to the idea of getting into something like uh, pro fighting – for the most part, they have already heard about it and formed an opinion. And I also think that whatever Dana White says about bigger than soccer or world domination or whatever, this sport is never going to be for everybody. Right. It just – fighting has never been that way. You look back through the history of you know boxing to bare-knuckle boxing to like hundreds of years ago and it's the same kind of fluctuations in all of them where – for the most part, there's going to be a hardcore audience that is into absolutely anybody doing it. And then there's going to be people who are brought in when there's a captivating character who kind of shows up out of nowhere and is a superstar for a little while. And, you know, and then when that person goes away, then their interest will go away with it. And that's exactly what we've seen in, in MMA, in boxing and everything. So I think that that's just going to continue. But you're right that the question is really how does it get presented and what will that do to the – people who are already in the pool of both fans and potential fans, because in a lot of ways, I think you can argue that the Fox sports deal was not all positives for that group. I mean, we became acquainted with a certain type of UFC event that felt like a fucking slog just to get through that. We were not really familiar with before back when it was on spike TV and back when there was, you know, pre it was Facebook prelims and whatever, you know, and now we, 
we are familiar with a different type of like somewhat watered down UFC product sometimes where it feels like it's just work to sit through the entire thing. And you do wonder, like, if you're going to do 30 events across TV and streaming with ESPN, will that change or will it just be the same exact thing on a different channel? Right. Well, we know that if the UFC sticks to 12 pay-per-views a year, that the number or the sheer number of, event, of events is not going to decrease. No, it'll, it'll be go, slightly more. Yeah, it'll go back up to 42, which is sort of like the high watermark so far for a number of events in a year. So we know that some of those problems are likely not to be lessened. Uh, but it will be, I think you're, you're right just to ask, like, it'll be interesting to see what we do production value wise and like, uh, flow of event wise, because those Fox Sports One events, uh, can feel just like pulling teeth. So it will be interesting if ESPN, uh, or the UFC wants to make a change in that regard, because, you know, you could make the, the actual viewing experience a lot more fan friendly, but I think to do that, you would have to cut down on commercial breaks. Uh, so like there's a little bit of give and take there in terms of how you, how you might do the broadcast. Uh, and it, you know, if ESPN is the worldwide leader, et cetera, et cetera, like, uh, you would think that they, that they would want the product to be appealing. So it's, we have a, you know, one of the things that's interesting about this crossover to ESPN is that like it presents this opportunity for the UFC to kind of just reboot everything. If it wants to, it could make the, the product completely different, you know, more fan friendly, easier to watch, even though you're still going to be doing like a, what I believe the technical term is an ass load of events every year. Like you could find a more appealing way to do it. And so like, will they do that? My gut tells me no. Yeah. Cause I don't think we've ever seen the UFC kind of do that before, but it does present that opportunity. I'll, I'll give them credit though for this, Ben, the thing I've been asking for this whole time, get me a broadcast deal that saves me some money as a fan that saves the viewers of the UFC money. And if most of these things are going to be on ESPN or ESPN2, it will likely provide people with the opportunity to, to like scale back on their cable or satellite. Yeah, we package. can step down from that premium package right, now that have, I don't need Fox Sports 2 anymore. Right, you don't have to be on the like solid gold A-lister $500 streaming or satellite package, whatever it is. Yeah. So that maybe that will be a positive. I don't know. Next question this week. Comes to us from David Dean. He writes, Neil Magny did the damn thing against replacement fighter Craig White. Magny is 6-2 and two since his loss to Damian Maia a few years back. At this point, what's the ceiling for a guy like Magny? Really tough, but can't get it done against the cream of the crop of the division? I don't know why, but that makes me feel sad for the guy. Yeah, and we're saying when you say he's 6-2 and two since that loss to Damian Maia at UFC 190 in 2015, the two are Lorenz Lorcan and Rafael Dos Anjos. So, not too shabby. Yeah. Well, that's the cream of the crop, right? That yeah. David Dean. Well, but also he's beat some of the cream of the crop too. When you look, I mean, he's beat, got win over Kelvin Gastelum, uh, beat Hector Lombard, Johnny Hendricks, Carlos Condit, uh, and then with this one, you know, like he says, replacement fighter Craig White. That's one of those where you get a late replacement guy without a Wikipedia page, and in order just to kind of keep yourself on level footing, you got to go in there and demolish the guy, which he did, which he did, and then afterwards, you know, I think. Neil Magny is one of those guys where it's tough for him to kind of get over with MMA fans because he's a super good fighter. And I think at, initially he might come across personality-wise as boring. But then you, when you kind of dig into it, he's, he's an interesting, smart guy. He gets on the mic 
talks about how he's glad he won this fight because he has this thing where he's given like $10,000 or whatever to like some charity for some little girl who's sick. Oh, and then also Kamaru Usman, it's time for me to beat that ass. <laughs> That's two good things right there. Yeah. Two different good things. And yeah. it's like he says them in the, like his delivery is what could use a little work. Maybe he's a little bit like flat and it, it doesn't come across like, you know, you're getting super hyped up. But when you think about what he's actually saying – uh, and I remember talking to him about when he went to Demian Maya's jiu-jitsu seminar, like mm-hmm. jiu-jitsu for MMA yeah. seminar after losing to him. Which he said he was going to do, and then he did. Right, yeah. And, you know, and he didn't make a big deal of it. It was just kind of like I heard he did it, and so it was like wanted to write a story about it. And he was like, okay, I guess I'll talk to you about it. But when you kind of dig into it with a guy like Neil Magny, you're like, there is a lot there that you could promote. Uh, but he feels like he kind of gets forgotten about yeah. it a little bit. Well, and he's one of these guys – that he's been in the UFC for like five years. He came in in 2013. He's one of these guys that rightly or wrongly, we feel like we know the the book on, right? Like we've right. got him scouted. Like we know what the, what the high watermark for Neil Magny is. We know what he's capable of. We know what he's not capable of. And maybe that's unfair because the guy's only 30 years old. Uh, he's still pretty much in his ac- athletic prime. I don't necessarily know that he's going to, you know, jump up and become the 170 pound champion anytime soon. But like, I feel like it's like a legitimate criticism if you are Neil Magny to say that you feel underappreciated or forgotten about at times because the guy is clearly really, really good. Uh, maybe he is the kind of person that we need to spend uh, more time thinking and talking about in that division, especially right now when, you know, you've got so many talented people and kind of an unclear uh, title picture and or way forward. Like, I don't see why Neil Magny shouldn't be considered right up there with the rest of those guys. If he goes out there, gets the Kamaru Usman fight, and beats that ass? Well, that would be a big, that would be big. That would yeah. be a big deal. Next question this week comes to us from Edgewood. That's uh, the, only, the only name. Okay. Feels like maybe he's going to do a guest rap on one of DJ Mikey B's uh, mixes. I'm into featuring it. Featuring Edgewood. I'm totally into it. He writes, guys, Nick Diaz was arrested and released on bail on a charge of domestic battery over the weekend. This is obviously a huge bummer, and I'm not sure what can be said of it. Will fans turn on Diaz after this ugly news, or will they ignore it and keep making Diaz125 memes on Twitter? So this actually, uh, this is a bummer, because Nick Diaz, obviously a huge fan favorite, has been inactive in terms of being a professional fighter since, what, 2015? But he gets arrested in Las Vegas over the weekend. Uh, on a charge of domestic battery, as is so often the case in these kinds of things, details are scarce at the moment. Uh, we know some things he was, he was released on, I believe $18,000 bail, something like that. Uh, but we don't know much about this situation, but, uh, it doesn't look promising for, I mean, I'm going to say the reputation of Nick Diaz, even though I guess the heart of this question is, does he suffer like a, uh, a downgrade in terms of how fans view him moving forward because of this. Yeah, that is an interesting question. I mean, you're right. We do need to know a lot more about this before we know exactly how it's going to play out. But it's true that with both Diaz brothers so far, it's been a really resilient kind of fame that they have among uh, MMA fans. And in a way that most other fighters can't come close to, because we always talk about how fans are really fickle and they'll turn on you. you. You win five straight, but then you lose one and suddenly you suck. And the Diaz brothers have both been kind of completely the opposite. Like right. Nick Diaz can, he can lose every single fight and people still want to see him and still get hyped about Nick Diaz. But this is something different. And then it's, especially when your whole persona is that you're, you're wilding out in these streets as the, the Stockton street tough. It's not so cool then if that turns into a domestic violence situation, it's a lot harder to be into that whole persona. Um, so yeah, I mean, we will have to see exactly how it plays out and, you know, what there is behind it. But yeah, it, it does make you think that 
that would have to be something I think that even the one two five DS fans would have to be like, yeah, this one isn't fun. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from Tom D. He writes, following UFC Liverpool, Dana White announced that Conor McGregor is likely likely to fight for the lightweight title because it's the fight he wants. So Conor will apparently not be punished by the UFC for the whole MSG hand cart throwing. Two fights canceled, three felony charges incident. This could be seen as a reward. Are you fucking kidding me? After almost 18 months of inactivity and several high-profile fuck-ups, he still has the sway to get a title shot because he wants one. This is bullshit. But should we even be surprised? Well, we can answer that last question succinctly. No. Not surprised. Because, like, what else are you going to do with the guy? Here's the crux of this whole thing about the Conor McGregor bus attack. Clearly, he was wilding out and has established a somewhat long, at this point, pattern of increasingly wilding out over a long period of time. The bus hand cart throwing incident was the worst. But he's faced no consequences for any of it. So Right. Well, what can you do to the guy at this point if you are the UFC? Like, you can't cut him. You can suspend him, I guess, but you're really only costing yourself money uh, at the end of the day. I, you could fine him, but I don't exactly know what the sort of independent contractor uh, ins and outs of that would be. And obviously, if he comes back, he's going to fight for the title. He's still, in some ways, regarded as the lightweight champion. You're not going to, like, bring Conor McGregor back and give him a tune-up fight. I Because how would you even do it? I know what you can do. You bring him back, let him fight for the title, but you say he is not eligible for a post-fight bonus. Okay, yeah, there you go. Now you got it. Maybe you even, knocked that one out of the park. Yeah, maybe even go the Ally Quinta route. He's not eligible for a post-fight bonus, like in his next four fights, which apparently whatever that that was like the punishment for Ally Quinta not getting on a plane to go to the fighter retreat. Yes. So boom, punished, learned his lesson. Yeah, well, I'm sure he's learned his lesson. And yeah, if there's anything we can say. That. Uh, for sure about Conor McGregor is that he's a fast learner yeah, when it, it comes to this kind of thing. When he realizes that he cost himself an opportunity to make 50 Gs, <laughs> hit him in the pocketbook, Chad. That's, why, that's how you make your point. Last question this week comes to us from Cliff Krause. He writes, which judges were right in the Jason Knight fight? One judge called it 30-27 for Knight. The other two scored it 29-28, I think, for Mr. Finland. I thought Jason Knight was the aggressor on the ground, and Mr. Finland uh, didn't really accomplish much offense on top. Now Knight is on a three-fight losing streak. Where does that leave him in this division? Uh, I support, by the way, referring to Makwan Amir Khani just as Mr. Finland. Yeah, just exclusively. Like, uh, cut out the pronunciation of the name. And it has kind of like a Mr. Robot vibe, yeah. which I like. So Mr. Finland. Yeah, well, I mean, and like a kind of like a beauty pageant vibe too. I like that. Yeah. Um, okay, I the only issue I would take with the score for one thing, I don't think you could say thirty twenty seven. Jason Knight that that score surprised me because I think he definitely lost the last round where he seemed to be just kind of waiting for the final horn there, stuck on bottom for a lot of it, uh, and like he he faded hard there. But also, my issue with the scoring would be how do you drop a guy twice in the first round and win it ten nine? We've had this conversation many, many times before, but how is that victory in that first round equal to a, a victory in like the next round where the guy gets you know some takedowns and gets a little more time controlling you on the ground? Like he nearly put him away in that first round. That's that's got to be a ten eight. I don't know how we're still having that problem in this yeah. sport. Hot take: the big fix in all of mixed martial arts would be to change the scoring system. Yes or no? Like, if you come no, up with a different There's too score, many problems, but that is a one fix. Right. Many of the problems, though, stem from, like, the scoring system, right? Like, the inability to sort of uh, 
penalize people for, for fouls. Okay, I think yeah. it has a lot to do with the scoring system. Like it just the the ten point must scoring system is too blunt an object to score uh, an athletic contest that is can be as diverse and nuanced as an MMA fight. Right. I just don't think it works. I, I agree with you there, but then it sounds like what you're saying as a solution is to a a more complicated, complex scoring system. Well, just which is different. I don't man, know what it would be. I'm not could, advocating one or another. We could fuck that up in a hurry. Well, yeah, we could, but like you got to come up with a with a scoring system that even a child could use, right? Right. But I also hold out almost zero hope for anybody doing that. I don't think anybody – I mean I think change comes so painfully slow, on the, especially on the regulatory side of MMA. I mean just look at the difficulty agreeing on a unified rules. The difficulty getting the unified rules to be unified rules. That trouble tells you like, yeah, if something that somewhat simplistic is so hard to implement – I don't see us throwing out the scoring system and inventing something entirely new. Yeah, maybe it's pie in the sky, but I think it's got to happen at some point. Uh, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comenevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us while you're there. Sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning. Catches you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We'd love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. Another thing you can do, you can head on over to Patreon.com and sign up for our Patreon. Patreon.com slash co-main event. We're always doing fun stuff for the Patreon people. Just some noir serialized fiction that we dropped on Friday. And then also... This week, we're going to nail down which book we're going to read for the next CME Book Club. Is it going to be Tito Ortiz's memoir or Chuck Liddell's Meditation on the Fighting Life? Did you see that someone on Twitter uh, advocated that one of us read one and the other one reads the other one? <laughs> and then what, what do we do there? I mean, I guess it would just be like kind of like a book report situation where we both okay. maybe we put together a PowerPoint All right. on, uh, on, on both the books and then the people at home can read whichever one they want. Or neither. Or neither, yeah. Actually, that's not a terrible idea. It'd be like a salon. Yes, that's right. We will bring back the Parisian-style salon. There's <laughs> a bunch of intellectuals sitting around at Gertrude Stein's joint just chopping it up. Yep, exactly. So I'm just throwing that out there as another option. Anyway, that's going to do it uh, for the intro part of the show. We're going to get started with round number one. And that starts right now. Well, Ben, the 14-year career of Michael Bisping came to an end somewhat unexpectedly over the weekend. He announced his retirement, I believe, on his own podcast and has since confirmed it to other outlets. Uh, Michael Bisping draws the thing to the, cl to cl the close, to a close. At 39 years old, with a record of 30 and 9, obviously as a former now UFC middleweight champion and a guy who I think has like kind of a unique story and a unique legacy in the sport, uh, and it seemed valuable for us to talk about his career a little bit to begin this week's show. When you think about Michael Bisping, Ben, uh, what, what comes to mind in terms of the mark that he has left at the highest levels of the sport? Overachiever. Okay. And, and I realize that people sometimes think that that's meant as an insult, but it's definitely not. I think that Michael Bisping is a testament to what can happen in this sport if you don't lose faith, like in yourself, if you are totally committed to this thing and you 
are absolutely certain that you can get it done as long as you're given the opportunity. And there was a long time there where it was like Michael Bisping was the only person seemingly on the planet who believed that one day Michael Bisping would be a UFC champion. And he, he got there. And I mean, we can dissect, and I'm sure we will, the particular way that he got there, what he did once he was there. But the important thing is he got there. And he was never the most physically gifted of all the UFC champions, especially in the middleweight division. Never the scariest dude for opponents to face. But the guy who would just show up, uh, continue taking whatever beating he had to take, extremely resilient, uh, a kind of stubborn self-belief, and he was able to use all that to, to propel himself to the various, very highest level of the sport. And when you look at his resume that he retires with, it's pretty, pretty solid. I yeah. mean, he, not only was he a champion, but he has like, at least presently, like the, the, a share of the all-time wins record in the UFC. I mean, that'll probably, he'll probably be passed, uh, pretty soon, but still, uh, and just a long, career spent uh, so much of it spent at the very top level of the sport and that's impressive yeah there are so many things that fascinate me about the career of michael bisping one of them being it's hard to think of another guy at least right off the top of my head who started out being so vilified like so widely disliked across the board by fans at least in the United States, he may have been always very popular in his native England, but like started off as a, as a heel for lack of, of a better term. And has kind of become so beloved after like, you know, like you talked about his resilience and his longevity. And maybe we all got to know the quote unquote, Michael Bisping character a little bit over time. And we, maybe we realized what he was up to in terms of his, uh, uh, his roguish behavior and attitude. So I think that it's really remarkable to reflect on Michael Bisping as a guy who, when he started, seemed so dislikable. And now as he walks away, I think is the, uh, you know, for good reason, the recipient of an outpouring of, of uh, love and positive feelings from, from fans. So I love that. I love that he came along in the heart of what later might be viewed as the golden age of the UFC, you know, comes along in, in 2006 and, and then gets to fight all the guys like Rashad Evans uh, Chris Lieben, Dan Henderson, you know, all the way up to the to the stars of today. Uh, and you're right, really did. Because you know, for a while, Michael Bisping was the, the, it was almost a cliche to call out Michael Bisping. Everyone wanted to fight Michael Bisping because everybody looked at him and thought that he was overrated. Right, but as you'll no doubt note, that didn't always go so well for no, people. Oh, yeah, it a was lot like, of people it who, was super dangerous to call out Michael Bisping. Yeah, a lot of people who kind of seized on him being like, okay, there's a big name who I think I could beat and people would be into it. Uh, and a lot of times those guys lost and he, yeah. they found out that he was better than they thought. And that was a, a recurring theme for years there, which was just like, uh, Michael Bisping being a better fighter and a tougher opponent than people gave him credit for just because of his, his kind of persona and how they perceived him. And I think we've said this before he even retired that MMA history will probably be kind to Michael Bisping, kinder than fans were in the time. And I think a lot of it will be that maybe a lot of stuff that will not get factored in when you take the big picture look at his career is some of the stuff like you know poking people in the eyes spitting on their corners uh all that you know the blatantly illegal knee to the head and that jorge rivera fight some of that i think will get softened when we look back on michael bisping's career as a whole yeah and he's right at the crossroads of of so many like timely issues issues that will maybe define some of the times that he spent in the sport like you know, he fought so many guys who were on TRT 
Uh, he fought a number of people who tested positive uh, for steroids at, at one point during their career. Uh, he was one of the first guys to kind of be able to spin any uh, fight matchup into a blood feud, which might have been his great strength. He was kind of at the tip of the spear of the UFC's international expansion efforts, uh, especially in England and its its uh, efforts to really establish a fan base there. Also, one of the things that I think is interesting about Michael Bisping is that he came off the Ultimate Fighter, I believe, season three. And it was one of the first seasons, might have been the first season of the Ultimate Fighter that felt like it was set up for someone to win which I think later became a little bit more common. And maybe we started to think of the UFC uh, playing favorites with various individuals off the Ultimate Fighter. Season three of the Ultimate Fighter, it kind of felt like Michael Bisping and then a bunch of other dudes. And he ended up winning the tournament. uh, And maybe that was one of the things that first set people or gave people a bad taste in their mouth uh, about Michael Bisping's early UFC career. But there's just so many things, so many like little wrinkles and aspects to his career uh, that I find both unique and fascinating. And, you know, when my, and I will speak for myself, when Michael Bisping first arrived, I didn't think that he seemed all that likable. And now uh, I think of him quite fondly. You do? You think think of him as likable now? Yeah. Like, and you know, his work as an analyst uh, later in his career, uh, just a lot of things. There were a lot of where I can't, and I can't decide if it, it was just Michael Bisping being around for so long, or we just sort of like got used to him. Yeah. What do you think of the the timing of his retirement? Because, I mean, obviously we can look at the loss of George St. Pierre and then he turns right around and takes that fight way too soon against Kelvin Gastelum and gets knocked out. But I still feel like this is a guy going out when he should. Yeah. We can't peer into Michael Bisping's head, right, and find out exactly what's motivating all of this retirement stuff. Well, he talks a little bit about the vision problems. Yeah. Even in his other eye now. You know, I mean, like, and that, when that's... A problem that you're having as a fighter, vision, pretty damn important to to have working pretty well if you're a pro fighter. Yeah, uh, that should be cause for immediate retirement. Right. And we've talked a lot on this show about how hard it is to find the right moment to walk away from the sport. Uh, and he clearly tried to do a thing where he lost to George St. Pierre at UFC 217. So he took a quick turnaround against Gastelum, uh, you know, 20 days later or whatever, and ends up getting knocked out in the first round. Uh, and I think credit to Michael Bisping. Even even if it sounds like some physical things may have uh, forced him into retirement, like credit to him for, you know, being able to walk away on the heels of two losses and without, you know, continually searching for that matchup where he's going to, quote unquote, go out on top or go out with a win. Uh, I think well, it's, a, it's a credit. A while. Right. Yeah. That's clearly what he was trying to do with the Gasolum fight. But like. Uh, I think it's a credit to him to sort of realize when it's when it was time to walk away. Well, and that also makes me more likely to believe him, to believe that this retirement will stick, which is always the question whenever right. an MMA fighter retires. I mean, it's the question has become more how long until you come back rather than will you come back. Right. Uh, but yeah, when when it comes like this so long after the last fight where it's not like he's just trying to jump, you know, or he's going off the emotions that the last fight gave him. And so he's saying like, all right, I'm done. Um, but he tried for a little while. He kind of got real with himself about the health issues. And that, you know, from what I've heard, it sounds like everybody in his life has been trying to convince him to retire. So taking some time thinking about it and then deciding that retiring is the right thing to do. And like what he said was that he kind of felt like, what else do I need to accomplish? Like, what else would I be sticking around for? I mean, a few more paychecks, that's always the allure, but you won the title you had the all-time wins record. You had a great career. What else are you going to accomplish 
now that you're nearing 40 and having vision, vision problems. Right. Uh, hopefully we're not having the same conversation six months from now. Jesus, I hope When not. someone drops out of a middleweight title fight and DJ Mikey B is there to, to vault himself in. Delete, delete his number just so you won't be tempted, UFC. All right. Uh, are we going to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on, be Ben, to round number two? Sure. Let's do it. I don't know who is the recipient of this Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben, but... We've got this news now that, what is it, UFC, uh, is it 225 where CM Punk is fighting? Yes, Chicago. So CM Punk is going to be on the main card. Alistair Overeem is on the uh, is on the prelims. First thing that happens, Alistair Overeem t- tweets like kind of a uh, quintessential Alistair Overeem tweet where he doesn't necessarily take a stance on it. He just said, oh, you know, you can imagine him scratching his chin. Looks like my fight is on the prelims. Interesting. What do we all think of this? Right? <laughs> to like, he just wants to get a like, take the pulse of the room. Exactly. On and then twenty minutes later, he's back on Twitter and he's like, "Now I don't have a problem with this. Let's just point out it's going to allow all my fans in Europe to go to bed early. So that's there we go. I guess that's an are you fucking kidding me? I guess CM Punk being on the uh, main card over Alistair Overeem is an are you fucking kidding me? And then Dana White coming out and saying. When Alistair Overeem sells as many pay-per-views as CM Punk, we can talk. Maybe a third, are you fucking kidding me? If that's that's all that matters these days, I guess. Fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me. Chad, at UFC Fight Night 130 over there in Liverpool, in front of the Scousers, uh, did you see Arnold Allen goes out there, gets kind of a come-from-behind submission victory over Mads Burnell on the main card, and then in his post-fight speech, standing there with his dad. Did you see this? I did not see this. He, hard to say exactly how much this is intended as a joke, but is kind of pointing to his dad and talking about how his dad has been using steroids his whole life. That's why his dad is a bulky fellow uh, and has just rampantly abused steroids for years and years. Not him, though. Not Arnold Allen. Never touches the stuff. He's totally clean. <laughs> did you hear it, Usada? Please leave me alone. Don't come to my house. Whoa, okay. Uh... Are you fucking kidding me? I feel like maybe you didn't think that one all the way through. Because I get it. Like maybe, you know, you're you're poking a little fun at your dad. Or maybe this is actually a real thing that you're trying to talk about. But are you fucking kidding me? Maybe, maybe don't accuse your father of rampant steroid abuse on, on live TV. Yeah, sorry, dad. Maybe keep the focus on what you just did in the cage. Where you want to go with your career. Fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Well, Chad, you'll recall when we were having the conversation about the Scousers of Liverpool, it was because Darren Till had shouted them out before the fight saying, everybody knows what they're like. And we said, we did not know what they're like. One thing I can say that I learned about them from watching UFC Fight Night 130, particularly watching the main event between Darren Till and Stephen Thompson, is that at least when one of their own is involved, they are a very forgiving bunch. If that fight had happened in Las Vegas, we end it with a shower of booze, a cascade of booze, if you will. But instead, even before the decision was announced and Darren Till declared the winner in a somewhat questionable decision, they seem to be enjoying it. Yeah. Which I did not expect, because sitting at home watching it, I kept waiting for the fight to start. Your thoughts? Yeah, didn't we talk last week about how the best case scenario for Darren Till versus Stephen Thompson was like a wild barn burner that looked like it was in a video game? 
maybe it elevates both guys and then it doesn't really matter uh, if Darren Till gets the win in front of his hometown fans. Didn't get that. The no. best case scenario did not unfold. And in fact, Darren Till pretty much ballparked the weight. Didn't really <laughs> get close. 174.5. Uh, and then, you know, the, then uh, at the end of the night, the UFC went ahead and decided it wasn't going to award a fight of the night bonus at all, which tells you some stuff about how everything went. Keep that money in the pocket then. Well, they gave out four performance of the nights. Okay. So, you know, all's well that ends well for those fellas. But, uh, you know, you all, you, you usually only have to have even a passable main event. And if there's no, if there's nothing else crying out for it, the UFC will ship the extra 50 G's to those guys, especially, you know, in Liverpool, Darren Till's hometown. So clearly people weren't bowled over by the, the action in the cage, uh, between Darren Till and Steven Thompson. But you're right. The hometown fans seemed to enjoy it. And Darren Till was very animated on the mic after it was over. Do you think he deserved to win that decision? Yeah, I mean, this is one of those ones where you could have given it to either guy, yeah. as far as I was concerned. And I don't know that there would be a huge, uh, you know, nece- it wouldn't be necessary to cry that it was a robbery either way. Uh, it, you know, I thought it looked like he was, if nothing else, like controlling the the flow of the fight, like what octagon control. Like, it seemed like he he was kind of imposing himself more on Stephen Thompson. Although, again. This is one of those fights where you get two really, really talented strikers together, and for whatever reason, they kind of cancel each other out. And especially with Stephen Thompson, who the more you watch him, is starting to see seem like uh, the heir apparent to the Machida style of like he's just going to go out there and kind of like shut down what you do. And if he doesn't get an opening to to score a, a technical uh, like highlight reel knockout he's gonna like get into himself into a really close decision so like stylistically after we saw it in the in the cage i don't know that it necessarily seemed like the home run that it seemed like when you just said darren till against stephen thompson i mean it's not like it was a terrible fight but at the same time it just seemed like uh the thing that both guys wanted to do was sort of incompatible with each other for whatever reason yeah well and especially because steven thompson seems like he can find a lot of success when he frustrates you to the point that you do something dumb that you get impatient and you rush in there especially if you get to the point where you start to feel like man i'm i must be down on the scorecards i need to really go after that guy and then that's when he can really hurt you and darren till never really seemed to feel that urgency even though i'll admit i was watching it and as it's going into like the fourth and fifth round i'm thinking Looks like Darren Till is probably going to lose this fight. And he did not seem to adopt that position like, hey, I need to go out there and finish him, which is to his credit, I guess, because he ended up being right. And it would have been a that's how you give Stephen Thompson an opening to do something to you. But also on Stephen Thompson's part, you know, obviously he's going to be unhappy with a decision like that. But it is hard, even if you're landing the cleaner blows and landing more of them. It's hard to win a decision with your your back up against the fence like that, right. circling away right. on the perimeter of the cage the entire time. Yeah, and that's something that you ought to know. That a, a fighter as experienced as Stephen Thompson ought to know that if you're going to try to win it that way, you need to re- win it really clearly that way. Yeah. Well, and again, like not to bring up another Machida comparison, but I remember, you know, after Machida started to get himself into this series of of pretty close decisions, and I started to feel like his style was uniquely made to like to lose a decision according to the 10 point must system. And like Steven Thompson is kind of the same way where he's like, he's waiting for you to make a mistake. 
And if he digs himself a hole on the scorecards, he almost feels like he's okay with it. And that, like, that's a dangerous game to play. It's easier to play it over five rounds, clearly, than it is over three. But at the same time, like, you know, the way that those decisions work, you, you lose a couple of rounds, you're, you're pretty far in the hole. Right. Well, and that when you're trying to win by this small a margin, like you're landing the cleaner blows, you're landing a little more of them. You're, when you try to rely on these really minute details as the thing that you're doing to beat your opponent, you run the risk that the judges are just going to miss those. Yeah. And they do often. Like you got to paint with a just big, bold strokes <laughs> out there in order to make sure that the judges see everything you're doing. Yeah. And sometimes if you're doing, you know, just a little bit more, the other guy can, he can cancel that out just by appearing to be more aggressive at times or appearing to be more dangerous. The way we've seen, you know, Diego Sanchez get a couple decisions that way where it's just like he'll go out there, mad dog it with his head down, just throwing a flurry of punches, and it doesn't even matter to the judges if they don't land. Okay, yeah. It just seems effective. Yeah, I think that's a solid point. What did you, what do you think about this? What did you think about the way that they related to each other in the cage? Because like they're clearly doing Friendly, the, very yeah, friendly. Very, like one might say, Two motherfucking friends, <laughs> yes. which is cool when you are in like a barn burner, when you are yes, in an absolute slugfest, yeah. and you can slap five and hug each other all you want. But like when you are in this sort of tepid, uh, lackluster, even the kind of listless fight at times, when the round gets over and Stephen Thompson's just laughing to me like, "Ha ha, we're just having fun out here," it all, it makes it feel like a sparring match yeah. almost. Like they're not really going for it. Like they're just out there, and like I guess it's their prerogative to approach it any way they want. But like, you know, when people are trying spinning back kicks or whatever, and we're, we're all laughing and high fiving in the cage when you're not, when there's not a lot of great action happening in the fight, it makes me feel like, what are we doing here? Come on guys. Yeah. Especially I noted a moment where late in round four, uh, the commentators were talking about uh, the fighters continuing to feel each other out, which if you hear that in round four of a five round fight, that's bad news, man. That means that ain't shit going on in your fight. Yeah. Uh, but I also think that maybe if this fight happens somewhere else, the result could be different because Darren Till has obviously the support of the crowd in Liverpool. And whenever he will throw like a big left and sometimes it doesn't even land, just comes kind of close to landing, the crowd will get behind him. That stuff really can have an impact on the judges. I mean, it's not like the judges are, you know, all selected from local Liverpool pubs and therefore are going to be biased in that sense. But when the crowd really reacts to one guy and not the other one, that can trick the judges into thinking that guy's doing more or being more effective. Does this function as sort of like a coming out party for Darren Till? Like clearly that was the plan. You put him out there with Steven Thompson in his hometown. If he does some kind of highlight reel finish or like gets a real significant lopsided win, maybe it vaults him to contender status. It makes him sort of like maybe the new Michael Bisping, you would even say, given that they're both from the same country and have a, a you know, uh, passionate followings in England. Stephen Thompson, officially the number one rated welterweight behind champion Tyron Woodley, according to the UFC rankings. Ben, did like this get Darren Till over in any way, or did the fact that he missed weight, came out and maybe snuck out the back door of the little hometown cook, and in the decision, undermine all of that? It undermines it somewhat. But what it does is, on paper now, a win over Stephen Thompson means that you can do absolutely anything with Darren Till next. You can match him up against absolutely anybody in the division. Uh, and... I mean, I think if you're the UFC, given all the things that could have happened as a result of this matchup, 
that's one of your best case scenarios. You kind of got away with one here because it could have been a lot worse. It could have been a stinker of the fight. Your guy, you know, the guy you are clearly interested in promoting loses the decision and the guy who wins, you're not really interested in seeing him fight for the title. And so then what do you do? You kind of got lucky there if you're the UFC. So I, I think that the energy Darren Till brings, like when he's on the mic, even yeah. after missing weight, barely winning a decision there that it could have gone against him. And then he gets on the mic and is talking like he is the conquering hero and everybody's eating it up. You're like, he almost convinces you that it was a great night for him. Yeah. Uh, so I think that it gives you the options. But I don't think after that you look at it and be like, okay, Darren Till is a star and the heir apparent to the welterweight throne. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. And and like you can't – I don't know that you just like call a do-over, but like it, it – uh, don't do over. Right, no, you can't. Please don't. I mean, especially not with Stephen Thompson, but like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, clearly it doesn't like end the end the career of Darren Till or make him like a, a guy who's not going to be a big star, but it just might be a, a like a longer trajectory <laughs> toward toward the top for Darren Till than maybe they were hoping to cut some corners with the Stephen Thompson fight. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. Sir Nigel Longstock is here. We're going to play a little Master Tweet Theater. That starts right now. that time again we welcome back to the show friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist sir nigel longstock sir nigel how are you good day to you sir i am sun kissed i wouldn't say that well i mean i assume he was someone's son jesus christ i walked right <laughs> into it chad i walked right into it the trap springs <laughs> well okay that's that's definitely going to be the high point of this segment uh what did you bring us today you know, it's funny you should ask, sir. I've brought a bunch of tweets from okay. members of the MMA community. It stands for Mixed Martial Arts. Oh, uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Not a sex acronym, as I originally believed when I agreed to do this podcast. Yeah, no, that took a long time for you to understand. And there's a theme. What is the theme? The theme is, it's not about you. Okay. You know what? There are so many tweets from the MMA sphere that could be culled into this category. And yet, Chad... And yet. No, no, there's there's not a chance he sticks to the theme. There's no chance. All of these tweets are from members of the MMA community saying it is not about other people, but it is about them. Okay, well, you you set us up with a uh, high expectation, but all right, I, I, I assume you're ready to go here, and we'll just go right into the tweets without a sponsor read at all. Of course, unless you are wrong. <laughs> this episode of Master Tweet Theater is brought to you by Big Boy Bats. The corked bat for T-ball. Fact. 98% of children's T-ball leagues operate without oversight commissions. Fact. Most of them will let your child bring his own bat if you say he's autistic or whatever. Big Boy is the child-sized bat that looks and feels just like aluminum, but inside there's a solid cork center to give your son the confidence he needs. Watch him become more cheerful and outgoing as he hits dinger after dinger. (laughs) He'll love his lucky bat, and he never needs to know its secret. Big Boy, the bat for boys who grow up winners. Order now and get 30% off when you use the code LOVE. (laughs) You know, weirdly, I feel like this is the most socially responsible 
sponsor you've ever taken on. If you love your son, why not get him a big boy? Yeah. Do you want him to lose and become a loser? No, big boy's the only way. Mm. The theme. Do we remember the theme, gentlemen? It's not about you. Correct. Correct. Oh, my God. There's been a technical difficulty. Okay, we're back. Tweet the first. Dear all animal accounts that I follow, I am here for your animals. The account is not about you. Seeing glimpses of you with your animals is as bad as hearing a guy talk too loud in a porno. I want to see myself as your pet's owner. You're ruining the fantasy. Huh. Okay. I remember seeing this tweet, and I'm... 90% certain that I remember who it was, but not totally certain. Chad, I'll let you go first. Uh, I'm not going to know any of these, so I'm going to guess um, Matt Matrione. Not a bad guess. I'm going to say Jessica Penne. Both fine guesses, both apt to imagine they own your pet, but only one correct. It is Jessica Penne. Yes. That's right. I mean, and that's a solid tweet, honestly, yeah, no, that's from a, Jessica Penny. Yeah. It is. It is. Long, but potentially satirical. Yes. And knows how to relate to the MMA audience, compare something to porn. Indeed. That's something they can understand. Indeed. You know, I myself have been described the same way. Long, but potentially satirical. God, you know what? You had too much early success, and now you think that you're on a roll. I'm a big boy. <clears throat> tweet the second. Every straw weight would have titties if they got to weigh in at 123 pounds, and I still have an ass at 115. Sachet is out. I mean, I'm just going to guess Angela Hill. It's Angela Hill yeah. for sure. It is. It is Angela Hill with no commentary on her ass. I love her tight little tweets. Oh, my God. Uh, okay, how is this? It's not about you. Well, you know, this one was selected before the theme, <laughs> sir. What a peek behind made, the curtain. We made it one tweet in. But it's about, uh, it's about old... one tweet. One tweet out of five. I changed the order. It's about old Beck Rawlings, is it not? Or, no, it's uh, about Mackenzie Dern. Mackenzie Dern, that's right. I confused them. Yeah. Mm. <clears throat> tweet the third. I'll say it now because I've been saying it. Someone going to take my idea, but this will be proof. Fighting octagon or circle or square, whatever shape, the fight should take place in a bulletproof glass ring. Hashtag, oh, this gives away the answer. We're skipping that. No more grabbing the cage. No more blocked view at Dana White. I got this one too. So someone is out here pitching a bulletproof glass enclosure, a fishbowl, if you will. Yeah. Also, I believe I recall reading that that idea was considered in the very yeah. start of the UFC. That's right. And one of their concerns was that you get sweaty dudes rubbing up against your glass enclosure, and next thing you know, it's just all a smeared mess that I you mean, can't totally see through. Can you imagine, like, say someone is, like, digging for a double against the glass, and their face is just pushed up against just <laughs> Unsightly. Yeah, maybe hilarious. And splattered with blood. Anyway, I think I know this one. Who you got? Um, Stefan Bonner. Mike Perry. Both fine guesses, both visionaries in the field of glass enclosures. It is Mike Perry. Was the hashtag, hashtag platinum or whatever? Platinum promotions. Oh, okay. We're doing that now. That's don't, fun. Don't put the word promotions in your business. People will understand it is bullshit if you call it promotion. Man, you're just giving away this free business I, I advice? Everyone is. At Dana White, don't call it UFC promotions. <laughs> okay. 
industries? We should go with industries, is what you're saying? UFC industries. Yeah, all right. Yes, UFC presents. Legit. I feel one problem with the bulletproof glass cage is that anyone who is thrown into it will be broken into pieces immediately. Huh. Right? It's very okay. hard. The fence is forgiving. That's pretty hard, actually. Yeah, but you get pressed up against that bulletproof glass. Also, I love the idea that we need to make it bulletproof. Because right. one of the say. big problems <laughs> is sniper fire yeah, least, from the crowd. At least the problem of people getting shot from the stands <laughs> will finally be eradicated. Finally. It only took 25 goddamn years. That is where Tank Abbott went, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Hmm. Picked off. Tweet the fourth. I'm giving you a clue because this one is very difficult. Okay. Sort of difficult. The tweet is regarding Frank Shamrock. So just bear that in mind. All right. Mm. No, he's a piece of shit. He <laughs> kicked me after I was chocked. He has no honor. He's a gypsy. No. So Frank Shamrock has no honor. He's a gypsy. Indeed. Uh, Henzo Gracie? That's what I was going to guess. It sounds like Henzo Gracie to me. Getting kicked after he was chalked. He get he got kneed in the head illegally by Frank Shamrock. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say Henzo Gracie. Both fine guesses, both inexplicably angry at gypsies, and both wrong. It is Phil Baroni, oh the man, the poet, and apparently the person who is prejudiced against gypsies. Wow, how that's a sneaky one from the poet. You were uh, you were three for three before that, right? Yeah, I guess I was. Also. The last two, do they qualify as it's not about you? Mm, well, the last one is about Frank Shamrock. <laughs> okay. One tweet. We made it one tweet with the theme. All right. It's rough. Mm. Last one? That was the last one. Oh, that was the last one? Yeah, we had four. Phil Baroni, Platinum Perry, Angela Hill, and her titties. And I skipped one. My mistake. All right. Tweet the fifth. This is exciting. My body feels like I played dodgeball with bricks today. Dog days of training are upcome me. I'm sorry, what was that at the end? Dog days of training are upcome me. Please spell that. Uh, upcome, U-P-C-O-M-E. Upcome and then me. Yes. Huh. I imagine the tweeter in question meant to say upon me. Or maybe not. Uh, that's just could be a good time. Let's see, who would be in the dog days of training right now? Yeah. Is that what we should be asking ourselves? Maybe. Um, I'm going to say Dustin Poirier. He's a good guess. Uh, Jeremy Stevens. Both fine guesses, both deep in training, and both wrong. It is Jessica I. Oh. See? see? Now that one I'm going to feel bad about. I'm going to feel like I should have got that we one. We haven't, haven't seen Jessica I in Master Tweet Theater for a while. And as Jessica I, like, typos or whatever you want to call them go, that one's pretty subtle. Yeah. yeah, this one is autocorrect, I believe. It's not about you, though. Because it's about Jessica I's training? Yes, it's about the work. It's, there was no theme this week. <laughs> nope. <laughs> not really, sirs. Well, that was Master Tweet Theater. So, Nigel, what else you got going on? You know, it's funny you should ask, sir. I've just finished work on an exciting project about a Philadelphia detective who is unjustly arrested for murder in Mississippi, where dinosaurs and historical figures come to life. I see. And what's it called? It's called In the Heat of the Night at the Museum. And what role do you play? I play even more racist Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> well, that was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir.
Well, Ben, it was a two-fight night weekend this past weekend as Bellator 200 went down uh, on Friday night, also from uh, London, England, and uh, then UFC Fight Night 130 later in the weekend from up there in, in Liverpool. The main event of Bellator 200, Gegard Mousasi goes out there and gets it done, captures the Bellator 185-pound title from Rafael Carvalho via TKO, three minutes and 35 seconds into the first round. Coming out of this event... Ben, how do you view the dream catcher, the young vagabond, Gagard Mousasi? Because we talked a lot about this last week, about how we would look at him if he became the Bellator champion with this uh, dominant victory over Rafael Carvalho. How are you looking at the young vagabond come, yeah, come this week? It's not just that he won, but it kind of trucked him. Yeah. Minimal resistance, in fact, from Rafael Carvalho. So, yeah, I mean... We said it before how Musasi was different than a lot of the other Bellator signees because he uh, was leaving the UFC on a winning streak with a full head of steam and also at a time when, remember, Michael Bisping was still the middleweight champion when he was leaving and a lot of people were looking at it going, man, if you match Musasi up against Michael Bisping right now, kind of seems like Musasi probably becomes the middleweight champion. And so then you had a guy go to Bellator where you could reasonably say, hey, this guy, if they had given him the opportunity, might have proven himself to be the best middleweight in the world. And this certainly does not poke any holes in that possibility. I'm still willing to believe it. Yeah, It, it makes me a little sad that we won't get the chance to really to find out. But yeah, I think after that fight, especially with the way that he won it, you think, man, Musasi might be the best fighter Bellator has. Yeah, well, and especially with... You know, the way things have played out over the last few years in the UFC middleweight division, especially most recently with George St. Pierre uh, beating Michael Bisping and winning the middleweight title and then uh, giving it up almost immediately uh, due to some health concerns on his part. So you have to promote Bobby Knuckles, Robert Whitaker from uh, interim champ to to regular champ. And now he's going to fight Yoel Romero at UFC 225 for a second time. Uh, and then you've got sort of like a swirling group of contenders like Luke Rockhold, Kelvin Gastelum, Chris Weidman uh, right behind him. Uh, I think it opens the door for this idea that maybe the best 185-pound fighter in the world is fighting over there in Bellator, uh, which if you are Scott Coker and you're just kind of, uh, you know, at times at least giving the impression that you're cobbling it together from month to month and that you need every Gegard Mousasi, you know, every Ryan Bader that you can get, uh, you know, that's not a terrible place to be. I think the question coming out of that now that you have Gegard Mousasi ensconced as middleweight champion. Like, what do you do with him? There's been some talk, maybe a uh, a champion versus champion fight with Rory McDonald, another UFC expat uh, who who is a guy who could conceivably on any given Saturday night be the best 170-pound fighter in the world. But Scott Coker is already out there, Ben, kind of pouring cold water on that idea. Yeah, he's afraid we were having too much fun. Right, which, which is a weird position to be in if you're Bellator. Uh, kind of disappointed. I would kind of like to see... You know, despite the fact that you necessarily have one of your champions lose that fight, I'd kind of like to see Rory Mack and, and take on Gegard Mousasi. Well, yeah, and that's probably what Bellator is thinking, is that if you're going to do that kind of fight, there's going to be good and bad to come out of it no matter what, and you want to do it when you're sure you can capitalize on it. You don't want to just do it as, you know, another night on uh, the Paramount Network from, you know, Uncasville, Connecticut. Sure, you want to sure. make sure that you're saving that one and making it really go to work for you. So, yeah, I get that. Um, I also think, though, that if you're Bellator, you need to really get behind somebody like Musasi because you have something here that you don't usually have, which is somebody that we already know. We already are 
ready to believe that he might be one of the best, if not the best. He's coming off this dominant finish. You need to make sure that we keep Musasi in our minds, that we don't mess around and forget about Gegard Musasi, the young vagabond, yeah. uh, which can happen sometimes in, in Bellator's schedule, especially because you have this one, Bellator 200, feels a little special even after the Crow Cop Roy Nelson thing fell apart. It did feel like a, a bigger than usual Bellator fight. And then, you know, you go back to uh, the Pachanga Resort and Casino in Temecula uh, for your next one for Bellator 201, and it's like a women's flyweight title fight and Saad Awad against Ryan Couture, and people are kind of looking at it going, okay, this feels like another Bellator's back at an Indian casino again. Yeah. All right, well, let me lay this piece of listener mail on you in the on the heels of our discussion about Musasi potentially being the best middleweight in the world. We got this email from scott d who writes after watching phil davis head kick ko linton vassal on friday and ryan bader dispatch king mo a few weeks ago i can't help but but wonder that with john jones out indefinitely and dc moving to heavyweight does bellator have the two best active light heavyweights i know they are known commodities but i have a hard time picking anyone in the ufc to beat them uh Alexander Gustafson comes to mind, but Phil Davis beat him easily way back when. A long time ago, but okay. Am I crazy? If not, is this a big deal for Bellator? Honestly, that's a very good point. But it also is a very good point when you get those two caveats. Like, take away John Jones, the best fighter in the world, I think basically any weight class. He keeps disqualifying himself from competition. Take away Daniel Cormier, the second best, who might also have a shot at becoming the best at heavyweight. Um, So it's like... If you take away two amazing fighters, then maybe Bellator uh, has an argument for having a couple of the best light heavyweights. But when you do do that, I'm looking at – if you look at the rest of who the UFC has in that division, yeah. I mean you kind of have a point there. Although I I would say the Phil Davis win over uh, Alexander Gustafson a long time ago and Gustafson was still very much a a work in progress at the point. He got a lot better after that. And even Phil Davis was talking – you know, he will tell you about how they got to be training partners and friends after that and how he was one of the first guys to start going around telling people, hey, watch out for Alex Gustafson. He's going to be somebody. Where are we on Michael Venom Page? The MVP. He gets another win this past weekend at Bellator 200. Beats David Rickles in the co-main. The caveman, I believe. David Rickles. Uh, verbal submission, TKO. 43 seconds into the second round. No moss. A kind of no moss moment there. Right, yeah. Like, clearly Michael Page. Well, we all know what the book is on Michael Page, right? Very impressive, talented guy. Uh, great striker, athletic. Hasn't fought a ton of high-level competition yet. Uh, what's really going on? with MVP. Uh, it still feels like Bellator is just looking for jobbers for Michael Venom Page. Does I mean David Rickles, tough guy, good fighter, uh basically a lightweight in there uh at welterweight to fight Michael Venom Page and you do not get the sense that Bellator booked MVP versus David Rickles in London because they thought David Rickles had a chance to go in here and surprise everybody. Right. This seems like they, they were hoping for uh, Michael Page to go out here and get some highlights, which is exactly what he did. Michael Page is now 9-0 and in Bellator. 13-0 and overall. But like, if you are just going out there kind of like trying to pad the record of Michael Page or just find him fights to win, I'm almost going to say that time has passed. Like, 9-0. and Nine wins in Bellator. Like, maybe time to step up the competition a little bit. Right, well, and the fight everybody always keeps talking about is Michael Page versus Paul Daly. 
and which is the one that seems like, all right, then if he beats him, he'll have beat somebody legit. And two fun strikers seems like it could be an exciting fight. Uh, Bellator seems like they want to fight to happen. Paul Daly, he keeps saying that he wants to fight to happen, but he also, when I talked to him for an interview like a couple weeks ago before his fight with John Fitch, he kept saying that he felt like, the time was not right for the fight yet, that it was going to be a big fight and it needed more time to simmer. And it seems like that's the approach that everybody wants to take with Michael Page's career in general, is more time to simmer. Shit done simmered, yeah, man, is what I'm saying. We're simmering Michael Page into his early 30s now. Like, <laughs> yes. I don't know how long you want to let the guy simmer. You, you let it simmer too long and you're going to realize you missed your window. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. Uh, you want to do just saying stuff and then we'll get out of here for this week? Sure. Ben, what's your just saying stuff this week? Well, I'm sure you saw the uh, reports going around before UFC Fight Night 130 that, hey, finally, Dana White, Conor McGregor are going to have a sit-down in yep. Liverpool. They were going to go out to a Scouser pub or whatever. They were going to hammer some a, of this out. A quiet booth. Yeah, and finally figure out you know what's, what's going on next in Conor McGregor's UFC career, what the next move is, how, how everybody's feeling. The meeting didn't happen, Chad. Well, color me surprised. Uh, unforeseen scheduling conflicts, which, for one thing, I'm just saying, that's why you use the little calendar in your phone and set up an alert mm -hmm. so that you don't, like, overbook yourself. I'm telling you, it can really help you out, do wonders for your life. But I'm also just saying, doesn't this feel, like, kind of indicative about everything that's going on here with the Conor McGregor-UFC relationship? We got so much hype about a meeting that was going to happen there's headlines and everybody talking about it and stories all over the place about a meeting that was going to happen didn't even happen. Yeah. Still have yet to have the meeting. Just going to stretch on kind of indefinitely. I'm just saying, seems like even on the micro level, we're doing the thing that we're doing on the macro level there. Just saying. I heard that they were going to put it on the cover of Meetings Magazine. It was going to be that big of a deal. Wow. They don't just put anybody on there. Ben, some good news, though, this week. Out of the mouth of Dana White. Turns out, when we do the crossover from Fox to ESPN, the ultimate fighter may not make the jump. What? The, this season of the ultimate fighter, Dana White says, may end up being the last one to which I just, I'm just saying this week, thank fucking God, finally, oh my God, Jesus Christ. Be still my heart. Do it. I feel like I dare not get my hopes up no, for that, though. Right. Yeah. No, probably we'll uh, turn on ESPN early in, in 2019 and season 543 of The Ultimate Fighter will be in full swing. Please, no. Please gonna be no. A, there'll be a teaser uh, commercial of, of an ambulance pulling out of the, the tough training center. This week, things get serious on The Ultimate Fighter. Don't give them ideas. <laughs> you make it more likely by just saying this stuff out into the universe. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to tell you about all the stuff that happens at UFC Fight Night 131, which I believe is Jimmy Rivera against Marlon Moraes. Sure. Coming up this weekend, I believe your boy Gregor Gillespie is also on that card. That's my boy, best fisherman in MMA, fishing co with the gift. Co-main event against uh, Vince Pichel. That's going down from, from, hell. from the Adirondack Bank Center up there in Utica. Yeah, granddaddy of them all. Granddaddy of them all. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So where can I get a copy of Meetings Meetings Monthly? Is that what it meetings is? Magazine? Yeah. Oh, you got to get down to... Uh, like a Barnes & Noble kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, got to get down to Barnes & Noble early because it's going to sell out. Okay. Yeah. Um, do you want to...
to maybe ride down there with me? See if we can get a copy? Yeah, so I mean, mine is going to come in the mail. Description of meetings, man.